Well, dear friends, would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Acts chapter 3. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 to 10 of this portion of the Scripture. And before we read God's Word together, let us seek our Father in prayer. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Father, we thank You that You are a God who has spoken. And by the power of Your Spirit, Your Word has been recorded written down for our instruction. Lord, we ask as we come as a needy people to be taught that You would attend to us in all of our weakness, enlighten our minds with the knowledge of Christ, cause Your Word to touch our consciences and lead us into a deeper affection for You. Lord, would You give us the understanding that we need? For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, would you stand for the reading of the Word of God? Again, Acts 3, verses 1 to 10. This is God's Word. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is God's Word and may He bless it to us. Brethren, please be seated. Well, after a couple of weeks outside of Luke's Gospel, we probably for, I'm sorry, Acts, we've forgotten really all that we were learning, uh, but we come back to a particular scene here in, in Luke's second volume of Acts, and it's connected to what came before it. Uh, in Luke's description of the daily life of the church, we might say, at the end of chapter 2, he mentioned two things that were on display. One, back in 2.43, that many... Wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And then second, that day by day they were attending the temple together. Well, now Luke focuses our attention on one of these days when the apostles are going to the temple and they work a wonder in the power of Christ. Now, chapter 3 is laid out similarly to chapter 2. We have a miracle followed by a message. However, in chapters 1 and 2, we've seen nothing but Prayer and power and preaching, the sweetness of fellowship, the conversion of souls, the provision for the saints. But chapter 3 is going to begin a new section. Because this miracle and the excitement it will produce leads to a dominant theme emerging. 
persecution. Much like the miracles of Jesus became under the influence of the devil in the religious leaders, the occasion to attack Jesus. So this miracle is going to come the impetus to imprison Peter and John. And that's just the beginning. You know, we've seen throughout biblical history that when God acts with great power, the devil rises up immediately to resist. In fact, one commentator perceptively argues that while Jesus at work through His Spirit is the main actor in chapters 1 and 2, we could say now that Satan is stepping to the forefront in chapters 3 to 6. Now, Satan's name will only be mentioned once in that section in chapter 5, but the devil always emerges to attack Christ and His people. That fact, by the way, is something we all ought to understand about the whole outworking of the New Testament era, even down to the present. There are twin themes occurring. The Gospel of King Jesus is going out with power, and the adversary is real and busy to assault the people of Christ. And yet, in the mercy of God, as one under control, He's thwarting the devil's schemes. Well, we're going to see two things. as we th- Sorry, three things as we think about this particular chapter. Three things. And we start in with beauty and brokenness in verses 1-3. to three. Beauty and brokenness. Now, these opening two verses paint for us the context of the miracle. Peter and John are together headed to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, which for us would be at 3 p.m. This corresponded to the time of the evening sacrifice. Therefore, the temple courts would be filled with Jews coming to pray, and that makes the scene an appropriate time to show the power of Christ and then to speak of Christ. But we might wonder, at least I did, why are the apostles still going up to the temple at all? Didn't Jesus reveal the condemnation of the temple? It was a beautiful building. It was a place for worship where they met with God. And we remember the Psalms portrayal of that fact. Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And yet Jesus had made it plain in His ministry that the temple was broken. The leaders had defiled it. They had misused it. They corrupted its worship. They obscured the grace of God. We could go back to Luke's Gospel and read of the works righteousness or self-righteousness versus the amazing grace of the Lord seen in Jesus' parable of the publican and the Pharisee. Or we could watch Jesus drive out the money changers in Luke 19 or how He spoke of the builders rejecting the cornerstone And then in chapter 21 of Luke's Gospel, he prophesied that this beautiful building would not be left with one stone upon another. It would fall. Furthermore, Christ by His sacrifice rendered the sacrifices in the temple obsolete. The tearing of the curtain revealed that through the death of Christ, the way is open to the very throne room of God for the believer. So why are the apostles still going to the temple? Well, some say they're only doing it for the purpose of evangelism. And yet, it appears that Peter and John, and the church for that matter, in their devotion to the prayers, chapter 2, verse 42, 
are regularly engaging in prayer at the temple. And that will continue even with Paul going to the temple in relation to a vow later in Acts chapter 21. What's going on? Well, brethren, we have to understand that we are in a time of transition. The temple will soon fall. But before it does, the church shows its connection to the temple by continuing to visit the temple. The new thing that God is doing in the gospel of Christ is not totally a new thing. We're moving from the shadows of the law to the substance found in Jesus. It's not disconnected from the old stuff. And it appears that the church is aiming to show from the start that they arise out of the continuity of God's grace to the fathers. The old ways are connected to the new ways. Christ isn't hostile to the law. He is the fulfillment of it. This will be something of Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. He's accused of speaking against the temple. But he surveys the whole Old Testament law to show what God has done in Christ isn't detached from the temple. The temple, however, isn't ultimate. It just points to Jesus. So I hope that helps us understand what the apostles are doing. They know the brokenness of the temple, but the beauty of the temple still shouts to the glory of God. And yet there's another contrast in our text between beauty and brokenness. Peter and John make their way to the temple and there's a lame man laying where? At the gate called the beautiful gate. Now, this gate is likely the Nancor gate, which was the most striking of all the temple gates. These gates were covered in Corinthian bronze. I think they were probably about four pillars. And they reached 75 feet in height. Just try to picture that for a moment. What that would be like, the stunning visual display. And this gate is elaborately decorated more than any other gate in the temple. These gates communicate the very splendor of the royal house, a fit dwelling place for the king of kings. And yet, at at this incredibly popular gate, which is staggering in splendor, lay a shattered man, a man lame from birth. The text tells us of people carrying him. And that helps us recognize there's a greater problem with this guy than maybe a bad hip or a club foot. He's likely paralyzed. And he's been this way all of his life. Acts chapter 4 will further explain that the man is over 40 years old, which is to emphasize the travesty of his condition. Never has he used the muscles in his legs. Never has he been able to support himself under his own weight. His lower extremities would be shriveled sticks, skin and bone with no building of muscle. I want you to try to imagine this man. He can't work. There's no government assistance, no disability program for him. He's probably carried here by family members right to the spot. But once he's there, he can't move. He can't go across the way and find someone selling a a BLT minus the B and get something to eat. He can't get up and go to the bathroom. Can can you imagine what that would be like? And as he sits, like 
blind Bart calling out to Jesus on the Jericho road. He's asking for alms. And the sense of asking here is there's a repeated, ongoing request. He lays there, ignored by the masses, trying to garner attention. Again, much like blind Bart. He's shouting out, Help a weak man with a gift. Give relief to this sufferer. Pity the poor. Now, almsgiving is an important emphasis in Jewish piety. And I'm sure he collected some funds. But beggars like him were viewed with contempt. A sight of his ravished body invited questions like those of Jesus' disciples that they asked Jesus in John 9 about the man born blind. Who sinned? This man or his parents? That he was born lame. Additionally, in the Mosaic Law, in the prescription for service among the priests, there was a provision that no son of Aaron who is lame could come near. Leviticus 21. And just as the religious leaders applied the purification laws to everyone, not just the priests, though that's whom they were given for, everyone's got to wash before they eat. Everyone has to go through that ceremonial cleansing. In like manner, they probably applied these rules to the priests about general people. If you're lame, if you're broken in body and full of a blemish, you can't draw near to God. Now, of course, the priestly provision does say something about the perfection of the temple. But it's been misunderstood to keep the needy out. So while the needy are tossed some coins perhaps, they are despised, ignored, and seen as outcasts. Now, What a sad situation. The law commanded Deuteronomy 15 that Israel was to strive to have no poor among them. To open their hand to the afflicted. But here lay a man impoverished still. What a contrast actually this is to the young church. If anyone had a need, he was met. There were no beggars among the people of Christ at the beginning. Everyone was helped. But amidst the backdrop of that beautiful gate lays here a broken man. And it's proof that the perfect is not yet here. It's proof that restoration is required. It's proof that even with the temple, there was only a shadow of walking with God in the garden. Sin and its consequences remain. And beloved, we should recognize that incompleteness sticks to us even now. We're still in a time of transition. Yes, redemption has come in Christ. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. There's forgiveness in the name of Jesus but broken bodies, broken souls still dot the landscape. And while those rack with affliction are largely ignored, the weak, the lowly, the destitute, those bruised and broken by the fall must not be forgotten. Rather, those with beautiful feet carrying the Gospel must go to the broken. Jesus had noted in a parable in Luke 14 of the great banquet that we should go out and invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. We should tell those who know in themselves that they are ruined the impact of the beautiful salvation that Christ brings. That He brings. We, we speak of the exceeding love of God, His compassion for the very ones who know that they have no hope in themselves. 
Because it's not the righteous Jesus has come to call, but sinners to repentance. Well, likewise, we take the sweet and glorious gospel to the ruined, and we offer, as Isaiah put it, beauty for ashes, a garment of praise instead of a fainting spirit. And it's worth noting that in Jesus' ministry on earth that He went to men like this. Those who recognized in themselves they had nothing to offer. No claim to righteousness. Now of course, we don't ever merit grace as though our afflictions prepare us for mercy. But here's what we know about God. He regards the lowly. He hears the needy. He gives grace to the humble. Was that us? Amidst the beauty of God's world, do we see the broken state of our existence? That by nature we are darkened, blind, deaf, and dumb. We all have a spiritual lameness that only the Lord can fix. Well then secondly, see with me. Attention and authority. The lame beggar was accustomed to being persistent. He knew how to ask and ask repeatedly when many people acted like he didn't exist. So it's not surprising to learn as he sees Peter and John go by, he pled with them for alms too. Now there's no indication that he knows who they are. To him, they're probably just fellow Jews from whom he can get something. But Peter and John do what seldom others did. They stop and they place their focus on this man. You can imagine as many people pass by, they scarcely saw the guy. They didn't glance at him. Or others, even if they threw him a coin or two, they didn't actually lock eyes with him. They didn't stop and speak and treat him like a human being. Look how Luke stresses strongly Peter and John and their attention to the man. Peter, along with John, verse 4, directed his gaze at him or looked intently at him. This is a searching and a studying kind of look. Exactly the kind the servant girl gave to Peter when he was in the courtyard of the high priest. And she looked at him, studied him closely, same word, to confirm what she knew. This man was with Jesus. Well, Peter now has that same probing stare, no doubt thinking about the compassion that should be welling up in him for this man's need and contemplating the power of Christ that could change his condition. And then Peter tells the man, verse 4, look at us. This is a point worth noting in the midst of about, about to proclaim the hope that there is, that there needs to be an engagement. Look at us. Pay attention to what we're going to tell you. And this eye contact, which was a rare gift, a treatment as though he was really there, not invisible, it surely raised the man's expectations. Verse 5, he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. However, while he looks at them hopeful, waiting for help, believing they have something to offer, what he's about to receive is beyond what he had asked or could even think. Indeed, we should especially note here that the man, unlike blind Bartimaeus, doesn't ask for healing. He isn't expecting it at all. But the Lord, through His apostles, is demonstrating a crucial thing for us all to get. 
initiating grace. God acts. God moves. God awakens us with life. God raises us up while we do nothing. God takes the first step. God moves with mercy. God comes with regenerating power while we are lifeless, blind to His majesty, and mired in the power of sin. Brethren, this is the way of the gospel. Power comes to raise us up when we don't even understand our spiritual death. Now, this man knows he's lame, but he has no thought of anyone being able to deliver the deeper issue. Yet with his gaze, here locked on Peter and John, Peter announces, and the emphasis of that old children's song from the King James is, is right, silver and gold have I none, that's the stress, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What the man thought he needed is contrasted here with what he really needed. The apostles have something better than money to offer. They have the Gospel of Christ coupled with power to raise men up from the ruin of the fall. Now, it would be too much from this text to say that because Peter and John didn't give the guy any money, that the church should never give alms to the poor. Probably here, those outside the church would be the thought. Because it's obvious they're already providing for those inside the church. And yet, Peter well, Paul, excuse me, will later specify to the Galatians that when they have opportunity, Galatians 6.10, they should do good to all. Further, Jesus, when He spoke of loving our enemies, He explicitly said, Luke 6.30, Give to everyone who begs from you. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. However, while the people of God should have an eye to the needy in general, the church's mission is not handing out funds. The commission that Christ gave His apostles was not to start an agency for the lame, the blind, and the deaf. The mission was to preach the Gospel. The church's marching order is to testify to perishing souls and tell them of life found in Christ. Call them to repentance. Call them to believe upon the Lord Jesus, the only name given among men by which we must be saved. Because He alone can wash you of your guilty stains and give eternal life. Because brethren, I tell you, there's something worse than being poor. There's something worse than being physically disabled, touched in your body with some type of affliction. You can receive all this world has to offer while you struggle, good things, money, living conditions that are pleasant, food, drink, clothing, and so on. But then you can still die in your sin and go to hell. A few coins might make the suffering of this life a little more manageable, but those coins have no power to give eternal life. No power to usher you into a state of glory where the effects of the curse are eliminated and there is only life and joy and peace with God. Now again, this is not to say that the church shouldn't care for the bodies of struggling people. Clearly, Jesus cares for bodies. But the point is, restoration to wholeness will not come through money. It can only come 
through Christ. So in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Peter calls this man to new life. Notice that title. He points to Jesus, a name that means He shall save His people from their sins. That Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. He's Lord over all. And yet He's the one of Nazareth, which is a title of scorn from the world. He was despised as an upstart from a nowhere town. But He who is reproached on earth has been exalted to heaven. And while Jesus has been raised up to the throne in heaven, Peter's reference to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth is to recognize His present nearness and power. In other words, Peter isn't speaking Jesus' name like it's some magical incantation. The right words, the right formula to exercise power. No, Jesus' name is invoked as a recognition of His abiding presence and authority in the world. Luke began Acts chapter 1. He began this book telling you of all... I've told you previously all the things that Jesus began to do, which implies what? That Jesus is still doing things. He's still teaching. He's still evidencing His power. And that's what's going on here. There's no power in Peter and John. They're going to make that very clear in the sermon to follow. The power is in the presence of Jesus Christ who has authority to heal what is broken. King Jesus is seated in heaven. But brethren, He's active on the earth. And in this moment where the first witnesses of Christ are going out to preach, and in this moment where the word about Jesus fulfilling all the Old Testament and new words of God are going to be going to be written, there are miracles to attest the word of Christ. But the miracles are not the focus. They only say, look to Christ, hear the word about Christ. The signs tell you, see, there's power in Jesus to heal your soul. And while Jesus was treated with contempt, He was crucified and killed. He lives. And He must be trusted. The commands to this lame man to rise and walk are appeals that he would believe in the power of Christ. Trust in the King's power to overturn the curse. Look to Jesus for strength. Rest on Him for life. Believe in His name because there's healing in Him. Because He isn't dead. He's an active messianic person. Now brethren, as we come to worship, I don't know if any of us are lame in body as we're sitting here this morning. But again, is there not a lameness? A paralyzation of the soul? Don't we come in ourselves spiritually inept? We have no spiritual power. We can't think on heavenly things. We can't see the kingdom of God by nature. And even if we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for life, trusted Him to save us, we in ourselves are still just miserable sinners. And Jesus must work in us. Jesus has to empower our understanding. Jesus has to make us see and feel the truth and drive out the curse from us. And if we are to walk in newness of life. We need the presence and power of Jesus. Wasn't that the point of Jesus' illustration in John 15? I am the vine, you are the branches. 
by me alone the implication, you can bear fruit. Apart from Him, you can do... What was the word? Nothing. We need the present activity of the reigning King to captivate our attention and to exercise His authority in our lives so that we would rise and walk in a new life. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Is that you this morning? And then finally, see with me. Power and praise. Having commanded this man to rise and walk, Peter reaches out his hand to help him up, just like Jesus did when he helped Peter's mother-in-law up from fever or Jairus' daughter from the dead. The offer of the hand is not some type of indication that the miracle is incomplete. It's simply a call to believe the Word. Imagine the scene. Rise and walk. He can't do that. That's cruel almost, isn't it? Unless power can come to heal him. And Peter's stretching out his hand. And for that man to reach out his hand and take Peter would assume that he believes the Word. He believes the Word. He grabs hold. And we read verse 7 that immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Think of what that means for this man. His legs are withered. His bones are brittle. His muscles atrophied. His nerves unfeeling. His tendons are stiff. His joints without the familiarity of making the necessary motion to walk, they wouldn't work. In August 2021, there was a daughter of a man who had a stroke who posted an online inquiry to a doctor detailing the struggles of this man who was her father about how hard it was for him to relearn how to walk. Some of y'all have seen this in your own lives with parents or grandparents or loved ones. How hard is that to relearn to walk? Well, here's what the doctor said to her. Once the excitement that accompanies our first baby steps dies down, we quickly take for granted the ability to, to walk. It's an accepted, expected part of human development, and yet it is a remarkable feat. Walking is basically a series of tiny controlled falls. Not only does each one require a complex combination of strength, balance, and coordination to complete successfully, there's also the added challenge of stringing together a series of steps in a smooth and efficient gait. This means pushing off with one leg, reaching from the hip with the other, extending and then bending the knees, flexing the ankles, controlling the momentum of the fall, rolling through the foot, and all of this being monitored with the various nerve centers which keep hundreds of moving parts in a constant sync. Add in the ongoing spatial awareness required to remain upright and to navigate our ever-changing terrain, it's little wonder that relearning to walk is so hard. What about for this man? Do you hear the complexities in noting something that we do every day? Doesn't a, a thought of it just make you want to stop and praise God in, in view of this marvelous design of your body and the way it works? Brethren, we have in ourselves evidence 
of an ingenious design of a master artisan, the Lord our God. We are living wonders of His divine workmanship. And it ought to lead to praise. But when the Lord takes this man and He restores what is broken, enabling not a guy relearning to walk, which could have been a month-long process, but immediately makes his feet and ankles come to life. Our praise should be exponential. Indeed, look at what occurs with the man. Verse 8, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. Leaping up. It's not simply that he took a few cautious steps like you know, your one-year-old trying to figure it out. He's already using his members like he's been exercising them for years. This is radical healing. Furthermore, not only is he healed, he recognizes that the healing came from the power of God. Because the moment he began to walk, verse 9, he entered the temple with them. That is, with Peter and John. Does the man fully understand what's happened to him? Probably not. But he already wants to be in the company of the apostles. He's attending to them and ready to go worship. And that suggests that while he didn't ask for healing in the name of Jesus, once Jesus initiated healing mercy, he wanted the nearness of Christ and he wanted to be with Christ's people. That's what God's people want, isn't it? More of Jesus and more of Jesus' people. And then as he goes into the temple at the hour of prayer with Peter and John, we read that he is walking and weeping, and praising God. They're vocal expressions of praise to accompany His freedom to move. He's grateful to the Son of God for the marvelous mercy that has been shown. But I want you to pay particular attention to the weeping. It's mentioned twice. Verse 8, and leaping up, He stood. And then He's walking and weeping and praising. Now, three things to think about with the leaping. First, The weeping underscores the completeness of the healing. The strength imparted to him was not a partial recovery. The Lord Jesus took what was dead and He made it live. Is this not an emblem of the salvation that Christ works in us? He doesn't sort of make us alive. He makes us alive. Brethren, we're not dead or mostly dead. or sort of dead. We're we're either dead or we live. And only Christ can move us from death to life. Well, are you excited about it? In fact, secondly, the leaping shows the man's exuberance. Have you ever seen videos? I'm going to sink you on a a YouTube uh, rabbit hole that will leave you for an hour doing things. You ever seen those videos where deaf children hear for the first time? Like, yes. Cochlear implant, hearing aids put in. What do those children do? They laugh. They cry. They shout. Their eyes get big as saucers. They are thrilled. That's how it goes with this man. He's leaping because he's overwhelmed with joy. And brethren, when the grace of Christ brings restoration, this is the way a soul should respond. There should be signs of joy. Do we see that in ourselves? Do we sing? Do we praise? Do we speak of the sweet salvation found in Christ? Are we shouting aloud? 
because of His amazing grace. Even on a dreary Sunday, can you come and sing a little louder because there's been salvation come to your soul and you are excited about what Christ has done. But then thirdly, the leaping intentionally recalls a promise from Isaiah 35. Isaiah is speaking of a day when messianic blessings will come and the desert will blossom, the glory of the Lord will appear. And what signs will accompany the appearance of the glory of the Lord? Isaiah 35, verse 5. Tell me if you've heard this before. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall weep like a deer. Maybe you remember Luke chapter 7 when John the Baptist in prison sent people to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? And what did Jesus do? Well, after healing right then many people from their afflictions, He said, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. What's Jesus saying? I am the Lord who has appeared in fulfillment of Isaiah 35. I'm bringing restoration. Well, what's the message here? It's the same one. Christ is alive. And He's ushering in a reverse from the curse. The signs of the end of the age have arrived. And you must turn to Christ. You must trust in Him. You must see His power and bless His name because He can take the root of man's problem, the infection of sin that kills, and He can wash it away. And then note as we close that these people who saw the man walking and praising God, the third time now we hear of him walking, they knew who he was. They knew this is the guy who would lay by the beautiful gate who was lame. And then seeing this, this miracle, they're filled with wonder and they're awestruck. They are amazed by it. And yet, I want you to understand that being in awe at a work of God and believing in Jesus Christ as the Savior come from God are two different things. Do you actually believe in Christ and His power? This, of course, will be Peter's message. He's going to call the people. Don't just be in awe of this. Repent and believe in Christ because the miracle calls you to turn unto Jesus. Look at His power. See His compassion. Give Him the praise He is due. Brethren, are we coming not simply to say, oh, that was a really great story today at church. Are we resting our souls in Christ? Seeing the lameness of our hearts healed. Blessing Jesus that He gave us life. Is there an excitement, a thrill of the heart at the wonderful works of our Redeemer? May it be so in our hearts. Let's pray together. Lord, we come this morning astounded by Your great power. We come amazed that You pity the poor, the weak, the afflicted, and that You come near with Your salvation. Lord, we know that our condition, while not physically lame perhaps, is one of lameness in our hearts. And You alone can give life. And Lord, we pray that if there are any, be he, any here who don't have life in Christ, that today would be the day of salvation for them. They would run to Jesus. For those of us, O oh Lord, who have Christ, may You attend to us 
so that a dullness doesn't overtake our souls. May you rather thrill us with your sweet salvation that we would praise Christ our Redeemer. For we ask this in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said,